Father, we come before you again in, in Jesus' name, Lord. Um, to thank you, Father, not only for being our God and our Savior, but also for being our dwelling place. Father, thank you that you've called us not only to serve you, but to love you and to know you and to be with you. Father, we pray as we hear from your word, we wouldn't hear it from, you know, we wouldn't think that we're listening to the word of a, a distant tyrant who doesn't care about us, or a king who doesn't see any value in us. But Father, we get to hear from you, the one who created us, the one who gave us value, the one who delights over us. The word says you sing over us with joy. Lord, help us to hear your word in that context from the loving Father that you are. And God, we pray you'd help us to rejoice in you and what you have to say to us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, so it, it's been a little while, a, a good number of weeks uh, since the last time we were in First Thessalonians. Um, so real quick, I want to ask you if you remember anything about what we've talked about so far. So what, what's some stuff that we've talked about in 1 Thessalonians so far in the first three and a half chapters? And I actually want people to answer. <laughs> it don't have to be real deep. Jesus, that is the right answer to every question. Who's the best, Jesus? Uh, I didn't hear who was talking. Who's that? Christian community keeps you from wandering. That's great. Excellent. Faith needs work. Good. Good. We need God to work. Absolutely. Prayer. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, these are all things that have been themes within the first, uh, the book of First Thessalonians. One of the other things that's a major theme in this book that we see come up time and time again, really in everything that he talks about. So every topic that he brings up, there's always this, this looking forward towards the future. Paul never seems, especially in this book, he never seems content to just talk about what's happening right now. Paul seems... Like he wants everything to be done in light of a looking forward to something greater than right now, to something that fuels what we're doing right now. And so I want to talk to you this morning about your future. Really, in these next two sermons, I want to talk to you about your future. And Paul has alluded to it a lot. And in these next two sections, he really talks in detail about our future and how our future impacts what we do right now, what we do in the here and now. That's one of the things about the future. It seems so far off that even sometimes when we understand something that's going to happen in the future, it doesn't feel real enough to have any real impact on what's happening right now. But our future does matter a lot um, and how it impacts our hope especially. So I want to read uh, just a little section from a book that I read called Unbroken. And the book is a story of this guy, Louis Zamperini, uh, one of the greatest books I ever read. I'm not, I like to read. I'm not big on um, like war books and war movies, but I heard enough people say this is the best book they ever read that I decided to read it. It is incredible. It follows this guy, Louis Zamperini. He was this pilot in World War II. I'll give you the quick version. Him and some other pilots are flying. Their plane goes down in the ocean. 
Uh, they think they're going to get rescued real quick, but the plane is supposed to rescue them, flies over them, doesn't see them. Can you imagine the despair? You know, finally thinking, finally someone's here to save me, and you're waving, and they don't see you. Um, so he, he's with two other guys. He doesn't get rescued. He's on this little inflatable emergency life raft, the kind of thing I wouldn't even want to be in a pool with, for 47 days. The only thing that's in it that's supposed to be food is like some chocolate. They got a little bit of water. A month and a half, over a month and a half in this. And it's also the crazy thing I've heard. They, they get shot at and holes in it, so they have to fix the holes. They had two rafts. Originally, one of them goes down. They get attacked by sharks. A shark jumps in their life raft, and this dude punches him away. <laughs> this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And so um, you can imagine as all of this is going on that they're struggling to have hope. I mean, this a month and a half, no food. I mean, they were near death. They were losing their mind, and one of them lost their hope. Listen to what the author says about why that matters, that one of them lost their hope. Uh, she says, though all three men faced the same hardship, their different perceptions of it appear to be shaping their fate. Louis and Phil's hope displaced their fear and inspired them to work toward their survival. And each success renewed their physical and emotional strength. But then there was a third guy, Mac. His resignation paralyzed him. And the less he participated in their efforts to survive, the more he slipped. Though he did the least work as the days passed, it was he who faded the most. Louis and Phil's optimism and Mac's hopelessness were becoming self-fulfilling. So she's saying even in this life and death situation where they're punching sharks and trying to find ways to catch fish with their hands and then just eat them. I mean, I would probably survive about four hours. Even in this situation, I'm barely surviving civilization. Uh, even in this situation, she's saying the fact that one of them lost their hope had a big impact, right? Because uh, once he begins to be hopeless, he stops even working towards it. And that's understandable. When you think there's no chance for you to be rescued, why would you be trying to do things to prolong this? Right? There's no chance. I might as well just let it go. Hope changes everything. It changes your posture. If there's something to look forward to, you work towards it. But when your hope is taken away, you're hopeless. You you no longer have anything to work for. Now, hopefully none of us end up in a situation where we have to punch sharks in order to live. But we're all going to have hardships. We're all going to have trials. We're all going to have things that require endurance and we need hope for. Uh, And we're going to wonder what it is that's going to be able to sustain us, what's going to allow us to navigate that, to honor Jesus in the midst of it. And I think that thing is hope. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where we'll pick up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. While you turn, I'll give you a reminder of this book. This is a book written by Paul the Apostle, a letter to a church that him uh, and a couple other uh, people planted. This is a young church. Paul goes there. They go there. They preach the gospel. There's fruit. Uh, The government, the people run them out of the city. They're persecuted for preaching Jesus. And so Paul writes to them to see how they're doing and to give them a little more instruction. And the Thessalonians, they knew Jesus was coming back to get them, and they found hope in that. But because Paul wasn't able to teach them, they weren't able to ask a whole bunch of questions. Uh, because he had to leave so quickly. So 
something that maybe they hadn't thought about until some folks died is, boy, if Jesus has come back to get us, what does that mean for the people who've already died? Uh, and, and listen to what Paul says. I'm going to start reading at verse 13. He says this. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. But the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's God's word. That's quite a text. Uh, And I think the main point of this text is this, that future hope changes our present grief, right? Future hope changes our present grief. Christian hope shapes the way that we grieve and and shapes the way that we go through things. Here's what it doesn't mean, and I I hate when people do this. They'll say, hey, if you'll just become a Christian, just repeat this prayer after me, just become a Christian, all of your problems will disappear. You'll never be sad again. Your unpaid bills will magically get paid. Immediately. Just trust in Jesus. It all happens immediately. And anybody who's been a Christian for more than five minutes can tell you that's not how it seems to work. So Paul's not saying reasons to grieve will disappear, but our future hope is going to change the way that we grieve. So, so let's talk about three ways that influences our grief. First one is this. It sets us apart. All right. So our hope, our future hope sets us apart in the way that we grieve. Um, I've already read it, so you know that this passage talks about death. Uh, Death is not something that's always fun to talk about. We got to hear plenty about death as we went through Ecclesiastes. Um, When a loved one passes away, it's always hard for people. I mean, it never feels natural. Death feels unnatural to everybody, no matter what they believe, because death is unnatural. And here's the thing, even if somebody's been sick for a while, even if you know it's coming, it still feels sudden. It still catches you off guard, and it doesn't feel right, and it doesn't even feel true. I know for me, uh, when my dad died about eight years ago, one of the strangest things about it for me was the time it took for it to sink in that my dad had actually died. It was just... It's such a strange experience to one day have this person who you've always known and you can talk to and reach out to, and then suddenly that's not a thing you can do. There's no other conversations to have. And you have to adjust to the reality of that person not being in the world. So it's like you wake up and you forget, and it hits you afresh anew every day until it finally sinks in. It is, it's, death of a loved one is hard, and it's a strange thing to experience. I want to read you a a poem. Uh, It makes me seem uh, very deep that I'm reading this poem. Uh, This is a Langston Hughes poem called To a Dead Friend. I think it does a good job kind of capturing how it feels to lose someone you love. It'll be on the screen. This is what it says. You can snap if you like it. It's playing. playing. Uh, He says, the moon still sends its mellow light through the purple blackness of the night. The morning star is palely bright before the dawn. The sun still shines just as before. The rose still grows beside my door, but you have gone. 
The sky is blue and the robin sings. The butterflies dance on rainbow wings. Though I am sad. And all the earth no joy can be. Happiness comes no more to me. For you are dead. That's how it often feels to people. He says, happiness comes no more to me because you're dead. And he talks about all this other stuff in the world that just keeps on going. Right? The sun's still rising. The roses still bloom. The sky's still blue. Birds still sing. The world is the same as it was, but it's so different because somebody's not there. So he's saying everything else is going, but happiness doesn't come my way anymore. And that's how most people grieve. My happiness is over because this person's life is over. And that's understandable. But Paul says, as believers in Jesus, there should be something different about us, even in the way that we grieve the loss of loved ones. Listen to verse 13 again. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. So when he says those who are asleep, He means those who've died, and it's clear he means that because a little bit down in verse 16, he calls the same group of people the dead in Christ, so Christians who've died. And it seems like, you know, maybe they've they've written to Paul, and when Paul sends Timothy to check on them, this is one of the things Timothy brings back. They're concerned about folks who've died, who, who are probably a part of their church, and Paul hasn't taught them that, and they don't know what it means for them. You know, is Jesus coming back for them too? Do they have to miss out on some of this experience that Jesus purchased for them. So Paul spends a few verses there addressing it. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be in the dark. We, we, you know, we want you to have a full picture of this. And I think part of what this, that this is how Paul responds to it by saying, I want to inform you. I don't want you to be uninformed, is it shows us the importance of truth from God's word, that this is how Paul is responding to them, that this doctrine about Jesus coming back that he's going to talk about impacts us in real ways. It matters for Christians and their lives in real ways. If you think doctrine doesn't matter, tell that to these Christians who were drowning in grief because they didn't understand the resurrection. It matters what God teaches, uh, and he doesn't want them to be uninformed because understanding that truth actually means something for their lives, actually means something for their hope. Sometimes we act like any deep teaching is useless and theoretical. Like, all I need to know is I'm forgiven. Anything other than that, I'm good on that. And that's, that's stuff for people who are just kind of heady or, or for pastors or, or for people who just like to debate stuff or people who don't want to really do the word. Paul is writing to these Christians. He wants them to be informed because when you still don't understand part of what God is doing, it has real effects on your life and how you respond to difficult seasons and difficult situations. You know, when stuff happens in our life, that life is really hard, for instance, sometimes we'll think, I must have done something wrong. So I need to figure out what I did wrong, because the only reason this would happen, God must be punishing me. You know what kind of doctrine in the Bible matters? That we actually live in a fallen world, and everything bad that happens to us isn't the result of our sin. That's a doctrine of the Bible that's important for us to know, so we're not overcome with grief. We don't respond the wrong way. Sometimes we're hopeless in a situation because we're uninformed, because we don't know the truth. You know, I think about, you know, like my, my kids, for instance, especially when they were like infants. You know, like if you leave the room or you set them down, they don't know anything about the world. So they're like, must be abandoned forever now. <laughs> and they lose their mind until they see you again. Like they don't, they don't have the concept yet that 
just because I don't see somebody doesn't mean they stopped existing. They're like, my dad stopped existing. I'm hurt right now. And they're hopeless because they're uninformed. They don't know how the world works yet. They don't know that I'm coming right back. They're like, I just told him he was hungry, and he walked off. Why is he walking off? Oh, wait, wait, okay, never mind. He came back with the... They, they're hopeless because they're uninformed. Uh, and, and Paul wants to inform them, hey, you're hopeless, but it's because you don't know a truth. You, you don't remember that Jesus is coming back, or, or you, don't remember, you don't know yet how this affects those folks who are dead. You don't have to be hopeless. Let me give you some facts that will help you wrestle with that, that will help you understand that. But I don't want you to think that just being informed, just having information is the key to all things, right? Doctrine is good, but good doctrine, good teaching from the Bible, understanding stuff in the Bible um, should lead to hope, should lead to some stuff in your life. If, if you consider yourself somebody who likes theology and likes to read the Bible, one of my questions is, how does it impact your hope? How does it impact your love for other people? How, how does it impact your faith in Jesus? If this is... If reading the Bible is some kind of intellectual exercise for you to feel smart because you just like words and thoughts and ideas, I want to encourage you to go to some other book for that. This is where we encounter the living God. If you like doctrine because you think it's interesting to debate, I want to encourage you to go debate something else. This is the God of the universe, not here just to debate. He's a God to know and to love and to serve. That's what this book is about. This is not a book where we check off a spiritual checklist. It's not a book where we just learn some random information. This is where we meet with God. And until we're with him physically, this is where we meet with him. So, you know, I don't care about the stuff that you know if it has no impact on your heart and in your life. If it doesn't make you worship God more and love people more, the information you know is useless. This is like me being really happy carrying around a can of gas. There's gasoline in one of them little red cans. Like, I got some gas, bro. It's like, what? <laughs> but, but you don't have a car, but I got gas, though. It's like, no. The only purpose of the gas is to get the car to go so you can get to a destination, right? So we're over here like, no, but I know information. But you don't love Jesus, but I know stuff. You knowing stuff means absolutely nothing if it doesn't make you love Jesus and love the people that Jesus created. That's what it's for. And so Paul said, hey, I want you to be informed so you can hope in Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. Paul doesn't tell them not to be sad. The Bible doesn't tell us not to grieve. The Bible tells us how to grieve. Right? Paul is telling them how. Sometimes Christians don't want to let other Christians be sad or to grieve. Sometimes we act like commands to rejoice uh, mean we're not allowed to ever be sad about anything. This is part of why people think Christians are fake. It's like, bro, I know you're sad. Why are you pretending? Or this is something that we kind of inflict on each other. Like, he looks sad. He's a little too sad. You're not allowed to be sad if you're a Christian. Ignoring that Paul said plenty of times, as he talked about how hard his life was, he said he was sorrowful, yet rejoicing. You know, those two things can coexist, sorrow and rejoicing. We, We shouldn't. Uh, try to make anybody feel guilty for grieving. We shouldn't even allow ourselves to make us feel guilty about grieving. Psalms are full of grieving. Job is full of grieving. Grieving is a good thing. Grieving is a good thing. You can grieve in a way that honors Jesus. It says, God, I'm so grateful for the gift of this life that you gave me that I'm sad now that it's taken away, right? Grieving only turns to sin when we grieve like those who have no hope or we grieve like our entire hope was tied up in this 
person. If you think about Jesus, um, I know we don't usually think of, of Jesus as a regular dude, but he was a regular dude. I mean, 30 years, he was a carpenter. He was building stuff, a construction worker, you know, a contractor, right? And he had friends. Did you know Jesus had friends? Uh, some of his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, um, Lazarus was sick. They send a message to Jesus. They say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Lord, the one you love is sick, knowing that Jesus has this relationship with him. This is before Lazarus dies. And, you know, we sometimes imagine Jesus as like he's caring, but he's, you know, he, he's not mean, but he's stoic. We imagine Jesus like our old uncles who, they're not mean, but they don't have no time for grief or difficulty or emotions. We imagine Jesus kind of like that. But that's just not what we see in the story of Lazarus. When Jesus gets word that Lazarus has died, Jesus weeps, right? Jesus cries. Jesus grieves. Jesus wept is what the passage says. So we see the Son of God grieving over the death of a loved one. Here's the thing. Even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. Right, so sometimes we say, no, no, you can't be sad because you know truth about Jesus. Well, Jesus was Jesus, and he knew (laughs) that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and still he weeps. Right? One of the ways that I know uh, it's a lie to say that grief dishonors God is because God came to earth and God wept. God grieved, right? Right? we should not let Satan, Satan would love to convince us that it's a waste of our time to grieve or to cry out to God in times of pain. I want you to know it's okay to weep because we saw God himself do it. The Bible doesn't tell us not to grieve. It tells us how to, right? He says, so that you won't grieve like the rest who have no hope. There's this contrast between uh, how we grieve and how others grieve because we have hope. And when he talks about hope, he's not just talking about this just sense in your heart that everything's going to be all right, even if it's not, okay? That's how we think of hope sometimes. Even how we think of faith, like, you know, I didn't go to work, but I hope my bills get paid. <laughs> I don't discipline my kids, but I hope they turn out all right, right? That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about just some subjective feeling of hope. He's talking about we actually have a reality to hope in. There's something that we know is going to happen. There's truth that should impact us. There's objective things that are going to happen. A free man who's walking around free should not have the same discouragement as a man on death row. They have different futures. The man on death row knows what's coming his way. There's a reason he's hopeless. A man who's just walking around free shouldn't feel that same way. They have a different factual reality to their life. And Paul is saying we shouldn't grieve like everybody else. We actually have hope. We should not be hopeless. What's the difference? What's the difference between grieving with hope or grieving without hope? Uh, grieving like we have no hope is uh, being completely crushed by it because, you know, in our mind, it's the final blow. There's nothing else. Life ends in the grave, right? Uh, to grieve without hope is to act like Jesus Uh, didn't tell us anything about what was going to happen with this person. But to grieve with hope is to understand that this isn't the end for him, that death doesn't have the final word, that we still have something to look forward to. There's actual consolation for that. And and this is true for stuff other than just the death of loved ones. We understand that even when the worst things happen, it's not the end of the world because whatever happened was not holding the universe together by the word of his power. Jesus is holding the universe together by the word of his power, and nothing's going to happen to Jesus. The worst has already happened to him. He got up from the grave and now sits at the right hand of the Father, and the whole universe is at his feet. Our hope isn't going anywhere. 
Our hope is sure. So Paul is saying it should look a little different. And here's why it matters. One, um, you know, just like my, my kids are unnecessarily losing their mind because they think I stopped existing when I went to go get them food, we go through unnecessary distress and grief when we think we don't have hope. Right, we're unnecessarily causing ourselves more pain and anguish. We make our trials worse when we forget about what's sure, what's promised. So there's one is the unnecessary grief that we add on to ourselves. The other part is this, um, our witness. We want people to know we're the ones who've been purchased by Jesus. And even though we grieve and even though there's sorrow, there's also a hope that sustains us. And, and what this looks like is not pretending you're not sad. What this looks like is in the midst of it, striving to trust Jesus and hold on to his truth. Uh, it matters. Uh, and it, it attracts people to Jesus when they see that people can, uh, yeah, can have strength in the midst of hard stuff because of their hope. I saw a woman uh, in D.C. who was dying of cancer and she was leaving her family behind. And at her funeral, there were all these people who didn't know Jesus, co-workers, neighbors, because they watched her suffer through this cancer. And they watched her life get taken. And they wanted to know what kind of God could lead someone to suffer with such joy. What could lead her to be trying to find ways to serve others in her last month? Right, they wanted to know, what there's something going on here. Because she's not trying to pretend like this isn't hard, but there seems to be something more to that. We want to um, prosper and suffer in ways that show that God is greater than our suffering and our prosper. Our God is in the heavens. Nothing happens to him. So one of the things, that, one of the ways our future hope affects our grieving is it sets us apart. We, we grieve as those with hope. Second thing is uh, how it affects our grief is our hope reminds us what's coming. Our hope reminds us of what's coming. There's a lot of stuff about our futures that we don't know. We don't know, you know, if or when we'll get married while we're single. We don't know um, what our kids are going to look like, you know. Uh, my kids are mixed, so I didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, my daughter looks like my wife with a black nose in the middle of her face. And uh, my son, I was hoping his hair texture would be like mine, but it's like, a, it's like a white man's hair. So the only problem with that is I don't know what to do with it yet. I'll let you know when I figure it out. Um, <laughs> Tried to cut his hair one time. Clippers do something different on white hair than black hair. So <clears throat> he was bald in this area for a while. Uh, we, we can't. My wife is laughing because she remembers. Uh, uh, we, we don't know the future, right? There, there's stuff that we want to know, that we hope to know, that we can dream about, fantasize about. But we don't know our futures. But there are some things that we do know about the future. There are some things that are promised, some things that are sure, right? Um, so, so we don't have to live in suspense like others do. He, he's going to give the reason for this hope. Look at verse 14. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. So what he does first is he reminds them of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's saying, look, do we believe that Jesus died and rose? Check. Well, in the same way, God is going to raise those who've already died who are in Jesus. He'll bring them with him. 
Paul is reminding them, even though uh, your brothers and sisters have died, he's reminding them they serve a resurrecting God. He's reminding them that death is no match for Jesus. He's reminding them that Jesus has already been victorious over death. He's reminding them that Jesus doesn't keep that victory to himself either. Jesus isn't stingy with his victory. Jesus freely offers to share that victory with all of us. So that it's not just that Jesus uh, was victorious over death. It's that Jesus is welcoming other people into his family and he's allowing them to beat death too. It's not like people who make it to the top and forget about everybody else. Jesus uh, was victorious over death for the purpose of giving us victory over death as well. Paul's reminding them of that resurrecting God, 2 Corinthians 4.14. For we know the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. We get to rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus, not only because he defeated sin, death, and the devil, but also because it's like a trailer. It's like a little picture of what's coming for all of us. Uh, If us being resurrected is the wedding, the resurrection of Jesus is like the engagement ring. It's a promise that it's coming, and it's a little foretaste of it. And we get to look forward to it with eager anticipation, knowing I know that uh, Jesus is going to raise me because he's already raised from the grave himself. It's his promise he's going to raise us. And and this is that hope, that solid hope. This is our hope Jesus is going to raise all of us from the dead. And I know hearing about resurrection is weird. That sounds strange. When we think about dead people getting up, we normally think about the walking dead. That's not what's happening here. Um, This is not the walking dead. Jesus is raising people. Uh, They're better off than they were before when we get raised by Jesus. Um, uh, And if we don't believe that Jesus can resurrect people, I just want you to know, if you don't believe Jesus can resurrect people, you're not alone. There were other people who didn't believe that Jesus could resurrect people. Before, like, you know, when he went to uh, raise a little girl from the grave, people, you know, he said, she's just sleeping. People literally laughed in Jesus' face. He said, no, no, she's just sleeping. They laughed in his face. Then Jesus was like, okay. And he said, come on out. And she got up. She resurrected. Right when Jesus goes to raise Lazarus, he said, like, Lord, why did you take so long? Why'd you take four days? Jesus tells Lazarus to come forth. Lazarus gets up from the grave. There have been people who've doubted the resurrecting power of Jesus before, and they were proved wrong. And the way that we know that Jesus can do this is not only those other people that he resurrected, but he got up from the grave himself, and he's going to resurrect us. We'll move on to this next little um, section right here. Um, And this next part of the text is pretty well known because it's been the You know, there's been a lot of speculation about it. There have been books and movies about it, vaguely. Uh, And so what I want to avoid doing is, you know, speculating too much beyond what the Word says. I think the Word says what's happening here pretty plainly. Um, And so he's going to continue to remind them of their hope. More details. Verse 16 is what he says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. I love that phrase, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I think about that Kirk Franklin and Shirley Caesar song, Caught Up to See Jesus. If I could sing, I would sing, but I can't sing, so I won't. Uh, the Lord Jesus is coming back to earth, and a lot of people talking about this have talked a lot about a, a secret rapture where Jesus comes back. Jesus sneaks back 
and he takes all his people away. Um, and it's been represented in, in books. There's been a lot of movies where um, all the people who are, it's like, you better be ready because all the real Christians are going to be out of here. And it's like one day you wake up and you're like, good morning, what time is it? To your wife and she's just gone and just her clothes are there. Uh, I saw, I was watching YouTube clips of, of rapture uh, movies this morning. And there's one, you know, left behind. Woman wakes up on a plane, her husband's gone. Kirk Cameron is running around the plane trying to find people. It's just suits sitting in, uh, just sitting in place. It's like, man, this suit, either he's gone or he just got undressed at random or he's invisible under his clothes. Nobody knows what's going on. And there's this idea that, you know, God is going to snatch all these people secretly. And I don't think that that's what the Bible teaches. Just a real quick side note. I was talking to John last night and he said this about today. He texted me this and I told him I was going to read this. He said, uh, since you're preaching about the rapture, I got the media team set to blow a fake trumpet at the end when you're praying. <laughs> he said, said, David built the trap door on stage so you'll drop out of sight when the trumpet blows. <laughs> he said, we'll need you to wear a white shirt and black pants so we can reproduce your outfit and leave the clothes on stage. That's your pastor. Uh, Moving on, I don't think that what the Bible suggests here is a, is a secret rapture. Here's part of why. Because the way he talks about it here, it doesn't sound like a secret. It sounds loud and noisy, right? With a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God. These are, this is not what you do when you want to sneak in, right? It seems like he's noisy. He's trying to. And, and those things, the shout, the archangel's voice, the trumpet of God, it's meant to draw attention to stuff that happened in the Old Testament, talking about the day of the Lord, when the Lord would come. Um, and then Revelation 1-7, it says, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Again. It seems like whenever Jesus comes back, it's not in secret. Everybody sees him. Everybody hears him. Um, so I don't think this is talking about that. Um, so and I don't think he's saying we need to be watchful and prepared for a time when people might disappear. But that's not to say we don't need to be watchful and be prepared for when Jesus comes back. That's what he's talking about in the very next section. So we'll talk about that next week. Um, and I'll say this too. If you disagree, you think this does talk about the secret, the secret rapture, that's fine. We can disagree about that. It's not in our statement of faith. You don't have to leave the church or divide, start a rapture small group, anything like that. <laughs> it's fine. Like, this is the kind of stuff we can disagree about. Happy to talk about it some more if you want to. Um, I will not sanction your rapture small group, though. Um, I don't want the main point of this text to get lost in those details, though. Uh, Paul is mainly telling them that those who have died will also be with them to go to meet Jesus in the sky, which is... Amazing. When he talks about meeting Jesus in the sky, that word for meet is a, is a technical term that was used sometimes to talk about like a, a state official who is coming to a town. And there would just be this delegation of folks from the town. A whole town, an entourage would go out to meet him and greet him and welcome the king. And it was this big thing with all this pomp and circumstance and it was grand and it was a celebration. And what he's talking about here is God's people being the entourage who get raised and then literally go into the air to meet Jesus, to welcome our king, marching through the sky to welcome our king to the land that he rules over. That is a glorious picture. 
And the comfort he's given them is, your brothers and sisters who died are not going to miss out on this. Before that even happens, Jesus is going to raise them, and then we're all going to meet Jesus together in the air. Um, one thing that gives us is, there's so many reasons we try to be partial, even within God's body, and try to act like there's some people superior to others, people who are primary, people who are secondary. Even in meeting Jesus in the air, God makes sure that there's nobody who seems superior or has some kind of step ahead of somebody else. He's saying, no, 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 we're going to raise them from the grave first, and then we'll all go to meet Jesus together. If there's any ounce of partiality or treating some as more important than others, as a first importance among other people, we need to kill that because it's nowhere to be found in the Bible. Even here, we meet the Lord together in the air. Deacons don't meet him first. Pastors don't meet him first. We go meet the Lord together in the air. Ushers don't meet him first. Mind praise dancers don't meet him first. We all go meet Jesus together in the air. People who pray for hours at a time, don't go meet him first. Everybody who knows Jesus, we get raised, we get to go meet Jesus together in the air. And this is an encouragement to us, and it gives us hope even in the midst of folks passing on. And, and here's, I think, the kind of climax of this passage. As a result of that, he says, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's the main point. You don't need to grieve like those without hope because those who've died will always be with Jesus forever. And you will get to go be with Jesus forever. We are his. He is ours. And the main thing that Jesus did on the cross was remove the barrier between us and God because God wanted a relationship with us. God wanted to glorify himself and be gracious to us in a relationship so that Jesus uh, when he returns, will bring us to be with him forever. I wonder, we say we love Jesus. I wonder, do you really love Jesus? Uh, when we love somebody, we usually long to be with them. I wonder if we ever long to be with Jesus. When you find yourself daydreaming about stuff you'd like to happen in the future, are you ever daydreaming about what it would be like to be with Jesus forever? When you think about stuff that you want to do forever, for all of eternity, not for 10 years. I'm not talking about a job for, for 50 years. I'm talking about for all of eternity. What, what would it be that you would choose to want to do? Uh, the main event of heaven, where God is, new heavens and the new earth, is Jesus. The main gift of getting to have eternal life is Jesus. We get to be with him forever. There are so many things we're looking forward to, marriage, kids, new job, new season of life with more joy than this one. But the main thing we get to look forward to and long for is to get to be with Jesus. And when we don't long to, it's not because anything's wrong with Jesus. It's because we don't see him as clearly as we should. That's one of the things we want to fight to do is get to know Jesus so well that we see him for who he is and we do long to be with him. Being with Jesus forever is worth longing for because Jesus is the one who's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. Being with Jesus forever, that's something that's worth longing for because he's going to meet all our deepest longings, right? The stuff that we, longings that we have that we don't even know is a longing to be with Jesus that Jesus is going to meet. We long sometimes to just, we like greatness. We want to be around greatness. We want to witness greatness. This is part of why we love, you know, watching basketball and seeing people do amazing Things or going to concerts and hearing people sing. Uh, when the Houston song came on last night, me and my wife were in the midst of deep conversation and we forgot we was talking and was just listening and enjoying. There's a reason we like to be around greatness and to see great things. And a lot of us 
whoever our heroes are, uh, athletes, entertainers, we would give two months pay to spend a couple days with them to just get to be around greatness, just to get to be in their presence, to be in awe of what they do. Uh, but here's the thing, even the greatest artists and entertainers and athletes will let us down. Even the greatest of the greatest who was the greatest picture of anything, Cosby, let us down. Kobe will let us down. Mayweather let you down. Whoever you want to point at, people will let you down. The longing to be around greatness and to be with them in their presence for an extended period of time that we think should be pointed at people who will fail us, Jesus is the one who answers that longing. And we don't get to just be with him for a few days. We get to be with him forever. And we don't have to give up two months' rent. He's given it to us freely. And he's never going to let us down. He's perfect. There's no scandal of his to find. You can, with a fine-tooth comb, go through everything Jesus has ever done, thought, or said. You'll find nothing but perfect, holy righteousness. We get to be with him forever. He meets all of our greatest longings, even the ones we know we don't even know are for him. Right? We long to be satisfied, so we go after this temporary pleasure. Right? We do things that God's called us not to do in search of this pleasure and satisfaction, not knowing that Jesus is the one that actually meets those longings, that his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We long to have all our needs met. We long for a day when we won't be checked to check and we think the thing that meets that long and ultimately is money and it does in the short run. Right, but money can run out, money gets lost, people take and steal money. The Lord Jesus satisfies us, meets all of our needs and he never runs out of grace and stuff to give. We want to be loved. We seek it in relationships and friendships. Jesus is the love that we're longing for on a deeper level. It is worthy to long to be with Jesus forever. He meets all of our deepest longings, scratches all of our greatest itches. We want to be with Jesus forever. And we want to get to know him to the point where we do long for him. Revelation says um, we won't even need, uh, the sun won't even need to exist in a new heaven and a new earth. Because the light of the glory of Jesus is all the light that we need. I mean, think about the glory of Jesus. And we get to be with him forever, even though we don't deserve to. You ever been somewhere where you felt like people were better than you? And you're like, I clearly don't belong here. Even if you just showed up at a restaurant underdressed, they made you take your hat off and barely let you in. And you have this sense like, I don't really belong here. I don't really feel like I've deserved my way here. We haven't deserved our way into heaven, but we'll feel like we belong because the way that Jesus gets people in is he pays for sinners who didn't deserve to be there. Jesus lived the life for us we couldn't live. He paid for our sins himself. None of us deserve to be there, but all of us can be there. All of us can be with Jesus forever. Jesus is offering that to all of us, and it comes through faith in him. If you don't know what it means to believe in Jesus, Please come talk to me after. I want to help you understand what that means. And when Jesus comes back, he'll be snatching his people up with him. But he'll also be coming to judge. When I see Jesus, I want to see him as loving Savior, not as fearful judge. We can know him through faith. Future hope changes our present grief. Right? It sets us apart. It reminds us about the future. Last thing, he says this real briefly. Number three, it gives us family. Look at verse 18. After straightening this out, he gives them one more thing to think about in light of the stuff he just told them. 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
one of the most incredible things we've been given is there's a whole community of people who've gathered around this hope. And we don't have to go through it alone. Right? He writes to this church, like, I know y'all are sad about those who passed on. He's saying, encourage each other with these words. That Jesus is coming back. That Jesus is going to raise them. That Jesus is going to raise us. We're all going to be with him forever. Um, one of the hard things about when someone else is grieving is you don't want to just step in and just be throwing facts at them and ignoring how they feel. We want to be good listeners. But I want to encourage us to be good listeners and to comfort and encourage people with truth. He's saying encourage one another with these words. So he's saying talk to your friends who are struggling with the death of brothers and sisters and remind them that Jesus is coming back. Sometimes we'll be talking to each other over lunch or something. We'll be complaining about how much our boss hates us, you know, how much our spouse is tripping, uh, how much whatever is going on, how much our kids are little terrorists, whatever it is, and we're sitting across from each other, and we're saying this, and the only thing we say sometimes is, Psh, I know how that is. You're right, they terrorists. <laughs> and there's sometimes where it's good just to listen, but the other thing that God has called us to do is to speak truth into each other's lives to encourage one another with the words that he's given us, not dismissing how people are feeling, but telling them what God has to say about it, doing it in a loving way, in a compassionate way, in a way that understands where they are. But God has called us to speak into each other's lives with the truth, and that's how he closes this part where he reminds them. So I want to encourage you, make it a point. This week, encourage somebody with the word of God. This week, think of somebody who needs encouragement, and encourage them, not just with a pat on the back, encourage them with what God has to say. I promise you what God has to say is better than what you can come up with. God knows the future we don't. Let's lean on his word and encourage each other with that. Future hope changes our present grief. It changes it by setting us apart, reminding us of what's coming, and giving us family so we can walk through that grief together. And if you read the Bible, you're going to see Christianity is not a religion that's just about right now. There are plenty of religions and ways of thoughts. The only thing it tells you is stuff to do just right now because that, that's how those religions are built. Uh, Christianity, uh, what the one true God has told us about interacting with him is that um, it's not just about what's happening right now. It's about looking back to the past and looking forward to the future. If you only think about the present, you're doing it wrong. I'm not talking about your past, the past of what Jesus has already done for you. And I'm not talking about the future you can secure for yourself. I'm talking about the future that Jesus has already secured for you. You cannot live a healthy Christian life without a lot of reflection on the past and a lot of hope for the future. Reflection on the past helps you to understand who you are, why you are, where you are. Uh, looking to the future gives you hope to press on, to make your way through it, that this life isn't all that we have. Jesus has promised us an incredible future. And that's what he's given us to sustain us in a difficult present. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you in, in the name of your son, Jesus. Lord, and we, uh, we ask that uh, you would help us to, to see Jesus for who he is, God. That the hope of what Christ has done, what he will do, will sustain us, Lord. We give us hope. Uh, help us to know you more this week, Father. Help us to encourage each other with your word this week, Lord. And Father, as we uh, prepare to take communion, Father, we pray that uh, you would encourage us deeply. You'd remind us of what you've done. 
with this meal. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.